Uh, it's great to be together, and for those of you who maybe are visiting or are newer here, uh, we are in the midst of kind of working our way through the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, and today we're in chapter 7, and it's, it's a bit intense, and so despite perhaps um, my better judgment, uh, I'm going to read the whole text. It's really long, okay? Hebrews 7. And, I mean, it'll feel like at some point, you'll believe, actually, that I'm reading the whole Bible, okay, at some point. Or, or at least the very hardest parts of the Bible. But we're going to try it anyway, all right? Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is... First, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man does not have his descent from them, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served as the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, we're a little over halfway. Okay, catch your breath. On on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who have formerly become priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, For the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody get all that? 
right? I'm probably feeling a little bit confused. Believe me, I, 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 I understand. But, but here's, here's what he said. Let me just summarize, even before we jump in, let me summarize very quickly. Here's what he said. Three things. He said, you need a priest. You have a good one. So act like it. Good grief. Why didn't he just say so, right? You need a priest. You have a good one. So act like it. And it's going to be a bit of a rocky road as we kind of make our way through here this morning. But if there's one thing for you to remember, one thing for me to remember as we walk away from this, let this be kind of our true north. If we get complicated or lost in the midst of this, this one thing. If you are a Christian, you have nothing left to prove. Nothing left to prove. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us with this. God, we come before you and we are desperate for you to speak. God, especially when it comes to a text like this, man, I, I, I look at it and I, I feel overwhelmed. I feel inadequate. Uh, most of us, I'm guessing, are lost. I feel that way as well. Uh, and yet we believe that you speak to us, that you long to speak with us. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to, to speak as, as we believe you will through your word and shine light for the glory of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, earlier this week, actually last week, I was in Dallas with a, a group called Leadership Network. And, and we were there for a couple of days. There's four of us from Christ Community. We were, we were there with eight other churches from across uh, the U.S. and Canada, all with four campuses, all there to talk about the joys and complexities of trying to live within a multi-site church framework. Um, really asking the question, what, is it, what does it look like to, to lead well uh, when you have four campuses but are one church? Um, and also, what does it look like to, to plan and pray for additional campuses? I mean, at Christ Community, we believe passionately that the most effective way to impact our community, uh, our city, uh, to, to see people coming to faith in Jesus, to see believers growing in their faith, is by planting new congregations, new churches. We believe that. Any, any study will, will show you that it's younger churches that tend to be the most effective at reaching their communities, missionally reaching outside of themselves to impact. And we've seen that here. Uh, we've seen that at other, other campuses, and we, we long to see that again and again and again and, uh, for God's glory. And so I hope that you'll, you'll pray uh, with us in that endeavor. We want to see that. But even there in this setting, okay, a couple of days, all these other, other pastors. I mean, honestly, I'm a little bit embarrassed to, to share this, but I just felt this continual need to prove myself. I mean, you know, like, well, Christ community does it this way, and, and we've got this figured out, and we're, we're strong here, and, and my dad could beat up your dad, and, you know, all of that. And, and really, at the end of the day, just wanting to be able to say, well, at least I'm a better pastor than that guy, right? I mean, that guy, shoot, you know? You ever, you ever feel that way, right? Uh, I mean, I've, I've told you this before, and so no surprise, right, that the loudest voice or one of the loudest voices in my head is the one that continually screams out at me, Nathan, you've got to prove yourself. Do more. Work harder. Don't let anybody see you struggle. Don't let anybody see a weakness. Nathan, prove that you're good enough. Anybody else hear that voice from time to time? I mean... I honestly wonder how much of my life is spent simply trying to prove myself. 
And half the time, I don't even know who I'm trying to prove myself to. But it's almost like I foolishly believe that, that one day I'm just going to kind of wake up, right, and finally have proved myself enough. And I can stop hiding, stop being afraid, and stop trying to convince everyone else and myself that my life matters. But that's kind of a ridiculous idea, isn't it? I mean, is it, is it that easy? I mean, anyone here think I'm crazy? I, mean, I, don't, I don't think you do. In fact, I think you know exactly how I feel, at least most of us here. Men, for example, I, I have this theory that, that most men go through life simply trying to prove that they're really a man. At least maybe that's just my story. To prove that we have what it takes, right? And, and ladies, maybe, maybe you're trying to, to prove and you feel stuck trying to prove that you are successful in a, in a world that's still, for the most part, dominated by by men. Or maybe the need to to prove that you're the best parent or that you've got the best family. And kids, you too, right? To to prove that you're the smartest or the most athletic or the funniest or the prettiest or or the most popular or whatever it is, all of us deal with this. So ask yourself, before we get any further, what are you trying to prove? I mean, if you're, if you're taking notes, maybe, maybe jot something down. Because I, I know you're trying to prove something. So what is it? And you know what? You're right. You do have something to prove. But you didn't expect me to say that, right? I mean, but, but look at you, right? Look at me. You know, maybe, maybe I've got my junk figured out a little bit better than some people, at least some, you know, those people or however we want to compare ourselves. But, but be honest. I mean, that feeling of, of inadequate, uh, inadequacy, the feeling like you've got to prove you're good enough, well, I mean, who are you kidding? You and I have declared war on the God who made us. Of course we feel like we've got something to prove. We do. And we don't just need more self-esteem, or better self-help books. We don't need a longer list of rules, or I'm guessing most of us probably don't need any more goals. What we need is a priest. Bet you probably didn't expect me to say that either. And, and I, don't, I don't mean in the, the Roman Catholic kind of, of way, okay? That's a little bit more normal than what I'm talking about. When I say we need a priest, we, I mean in the, the ancient, you know, robe-wearing symbols and, you know, blood and sacrifice kind of way. That's what we need. Church just got a little weird, right? Listen, this stuff is bizarre for all of us. And we are 2,000 years removed from a culture that believed all of this kind of stuff was as normal in worship as it is for us to say we don't pass an offering plate, right? We say that every week. But that, that's what it's like for them. And so it's, it's okay for us to be confused. These words were originally spoken to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century. All they ever knew of God involved priests and sacrifices, I mean, the temple hadn't even been destroyed yet at this point when this was written. Uh, Sacrifices were were still happening. 
And the role of the priest, we've talked about this a little bit, the role of the priest was essentially to um, represent God to the people and the people to God. They were sort of this bridge or this, this mediator. They gave the people access to God, this, this, this bridge. And this is how every religion in the ancient world worked. It seems strange to us, but God allowed it for a time to point to the broader redemptive work that he would do. And so these early Christians, they knew they needed a priest. They knew they had, because of their sin, they knew they had something to prove and that they couldn't prove it on their own and they needed a priest to help them. You see, the difference between us and them in many ways, we all feel like we have something to prove, but ancient culture assumed that, rightly, that they were too sinful to stand in the presence of God. We, on the other hand, our culture, we assume that we're too lovable really, to even need a God. And yet we all feel that insatiable urge to prove ourselves. We're not that different from them. Think of it this way. Let's, let's say you're on trial, and you are guilty of treason, and you are facing the death penalty. Your life is on the line. I mean, what you did was, was truly awful, and the gavel of justice will fall. But imagine in that situation how foolish it would be if you decided to represent yourself. Ah, I don't need a lawyer. Are you kidding me? I'll just, I'll just go over to the judge and explain what happened, and I'm sure it'll all just be fine. I mean, why not just sign your own death sentence? I mean, you'd be a fool not to want someone better, someone more capable, someone who knows the ins and outs to be able to represent you in that moment. Your life is on the line. You do have something to prove, something to defend, which in this case is why we need a priest, someone who will do the proving for us. And we have a good one. I mean, not, not not just any priest, I mean, I, I think we can probably all see how inadequate simply a, a earthly human priest would be in bridging us to God, right? I mean, it begs the question, well, if, if that person is my bridge to God, well, who's their bridge to God, right? I mean, they're just another sinful human, just, just like me. We, we see the inadequacy of it. But you and I, we have the priests of all priests, Jesus, the Son of God. But why does it take 21 verses, the first 21 verses of this chapter, to tell us that we have a priest? I mean, for us, when we hear that Jesus is our priest, you know, well, Jesus says he's a priest, he's Jesus, he can be whoever, whatever he he wants to be, right? But that's 2,000 years of dripped-in theology talking. For a bunch of first-century Jewish Christians, they had no category for Jesus as a priest. And they still wanted an earthly priest to be able to to prove themselves. They still wanted to keep on sacrificing sheep and goats to prove to God that they were worthy, which would defeat the purpose of Jesus in the first place. So the author tells them it's already been proven. But he doesn't just tell them, he, he shows them. And I think sometimes we... Uh, you know, think back at ancient cultures, right? We just sort of think, oh, these idiots, right? They're just superstitious. You can tell them anything and they'll believe it, right? Um, we think that, right, from our sort of high horse and modern, modern culture. Uh, but these, these people, they needed a in, pretty intense argument to actually believe that Jesus could be the priest that they need. And so the author gives them that. That's why it's so complicated, right? It's so hard for us to, to get our minds around um, because it's a pretty thoughtful argument. Let's, let's look at it. 
This is where, this is where Melchizedek comes in. Um, Melchizedek, you know, Melchizedek who, right? Um, it's weird, right? This guy, he's only, he's only mentioned three times in the Bible. Uh, once in Genesis 14, that's referenced here. Uh, once in Psalm 110, which is quoted here. And then, of course, here, right? In, in, in Hebrews. But, but why? What's the big deal with this, this obscure guy who's barely even talked about? Well, you see, according to Old Testament law, Jesus couldn't possibly be a priest. That, that's what he says in verse 14. He says, for it is evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Only people from the tribe of Levi could be priests. And it was also illegal for anyone to be both priest and king. But Jesus needs to be both in order to be our Savior. And so for them hearing this so long ago... Their thought would be, well, I mean, yeah, sure, he's the son of God. We, we get it. He rose from the dead. We believe it. But rules are rules. He can't possibly be our priest. But if he's not our priest, if Jesus isn't our access to God, then we're still dead in our sins, left despairingly to prove ourselves to God and to others and to ourselves. So it's, it's kind of a big deal. So this ancient preacher begins searching his Old Testament for a legal precedent. And he finds one. And it's a strange story in its own right, Genesis 14. I mean, even, even if you read it there in its context, right? You're reading Genesis all about Abraham and, and Isaac and Rebecca and Sarah and Lot and all those things. This, this story, even there, feels completely out of place. So if you think it feels out of place here, I mean, this, is, this has been historically, it just feels strange. You know, I think this, this story happened and was told, written down 2,000 years ago, to give this author the precedent he needs so that Jesus could be the priest that we need. Genesis 14 is about Melchizedek. Let me read Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 1. This kind of summarizes the story because, again, many of us are probably a little bit lost still, but um, that feeling's not going to go away for a while, just for the record. Um, but let, let, me, let me read. We're, we are going somewhere, um, but this is, this is all really important sort of detail work here before we get there. He um, says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, literally. And he's also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace, or king of shalom, Salem. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so here's Melchizedek, right? Priest of the Most High God, the true God, before the Old Testament was written, was both a king and a priest and not a Levite. So there's, there's the precedent, and they don't know where Melchizedek came from. It doesn't tell us, right? His genealogy, anything that father, mother says that there. They don't know where he went. I mean, he just sort of appears in this, this story, and we don't know anything else about him at all, period. But he's saying if Melchizedek could be that kind of priest, then maybe Jesus could be as well. And, and that's, that's why he quotes Psalm 110 here. So Psalm 110 was written a thousand years after the Melchizedek story and a thousand years before Hebrew was, Hebrews was written. 
Um, and there is written by David, but the author of Hebrews says, well, that's, that's talking about Jesus. When it, when it says, for he, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I know it's complicated here, but just stop for a moment and, and see that the Bible, from beginning to end, there in Genesis, right? There in Psalm 110, here in Hebrews, it's all building, right? It's one big story, all pointing to this guy, Jesus. And Melchizedek is a precedent that Jesus might be worth paying attention to. A precedent these first century Jews needed, a precedent that we need. But he doesn't stop here with that. Because, I mean, okay, so Jesus is a priest. He can be a priest because Melchizedek was a priest. That's, that's fine. But if Jesus is just another ordinary priest, we're in the same boat as, as they were, right? St- stuck with this sort of inadequate mediator between, between us and God. So he's, he's got to be more than just a priest. And this is where it kind of gets complicated, believe it or not. The author says, and this would have been shocking in the ears of that first century church, the author says, well, actually, you know what? Melchizedek's actually better than Abraham. And what he brings with him is even better than Abraham. Verse, verse 9. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, right, who's the father of the, sort of the priestly tribe, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And just when it, you know, couldn't get any weirder, Yes, we're going to talk for a second about Abraham's loins. So, um, I promise this is going somewhere. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to draw it out here. Um, not a, a picture, a diagram. Um, we will, yeah, never mind. Um, okay, so again, we're, we're, we don't really know the story, so let me kind of bring us up to speed. Genesis 14 tells it. Hebrews kind of overviews it, uh, but essentially we've got two people, right? Two big, big names. We've got Abe, and we've got Melchizedek, okay? And, and Abe, Abraham is clear. I mean, he's the centerpiece, right? He's the most important person in Jewish history. He is the father of all of them, but according to the story, and the, the Hebrews writer points this out, Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which means, and this is the point, this is the first point he makes, very clearly that Melchizedek has got to be better than Abraham. Because the person who does the blessing is always better than the one who's blessed. It's got to be the way. And the one who pays tithes is always lesser than the one who receives them. So Abraham is lesser. Melchizedek is better. Okay, so that's, that's the first point he's, he's trying to make. Um, and then with the whole loins thing, okay? Um, it's weird, I know, but maybe think DNA, right? There in Abraham's DNA, in his blood, are every Israelite, every Jewish person who would ever live, right? I mean, scientifically, that's, that's true. It's all right there. And so when Abraham is here, in his loins is all Israel, and specifically mentioned is Levi, the tribe of Levi, which means every other priest. So this is the second point. If Melchizedek is better than Abraham, and inside Abraham, at that moment when he's receiving blessing, it means every other priest who ever lived also paid tithes to Melchizedek and also received blessings from Melchizedek, which means Melchizedek is also greater than every other priest. Following that so far? Which means if Jesus then is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, 
he is the better priest, the better sacrifice, the, the better hope, the only true Savior. Only he could possibly do it. And, and for us, I mean, this is like, okay. But for them, right, hearing this, this is paradigm-shattering stuff. I mean, anybody want to go back to sacrificing animals on Sunday mornings, right, doing that here? Or, or needing a priest to, to get access to God and, and feeling like you have to continually prove yourself before him. I mean, you ever think about why we don't do those things anymore? It's not because we woke up one day and realized that they're gross and weird. It's because we don't have to anymore. It's because Jesus is the better priest offering the better way. He is the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate one, the only one who can actually save us, who can actually prove our case before a holy God. Only with him. These verses change everything. Ah, All right, but still, Nathan, come on. Can we just move on, right? This doesn't really connect with life. I can see maybe theologically, philosophically, how how it works together. But what's the big deal for for me, right? Because you're not looking to sacrifice any animals, right? You're not looking for a priest to sort of mediate your way to God. So what, what difference does it make to us? That's true. Our worlds are very, very different from them. And yet you and I are still stuck trying to prove ourselves to God, to each other, and even trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. We, we, we do it all the time. We, we want people to think that we're good enough. We want God to think we're good enough. We want to think we're good enough. I mean, the only difference is we don't, we don't find a, a priest to do that for us. We find our good works, or our church attendance, or we, we look at our, our friendships to re- decide whether or not our lives are worth living, or whether I'm, I'm successful, or, or have the right image, and all those other things. But it's, it's really not that different. We're all trying to prove ourselves. Arthur Miller, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, summarizes this intense longing in one of his plays. It's more of an obscure one. It's called After the Fall. Uh, And it's uh, a man reflecting back on his life. Just listen to these words for a second. He says, For many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now, there was a presumption that one moved on, a, on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now, he says, that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. We need a priest. We have a good one. So act like it. I mean, this is, this is where he's been taking us this whole time. He didn't, it wasn't just sort of giving them this, this, you know, theological framework just so they could say, oh, okay, good, check it off the list and move on. No. You see, without Jesus, you and I do have everything to prove. Before God and others, we stand naked and exposed before them all. That's why you hide in your relationships. That's that's why you're afraid. 
That's why you, you and I constantly live our lives trying to prove to everyone around us, the entire world, that somehow I actually matter. And yet without Jesus, we stand there with nothing but evidence that condemns us. And I'm not just talking about hell. I'm talking about now. Life in, in this moment. I mean, with, without Jesus, and if, if you're living in such a way that, that, that he is irrelevant to, to your life, and with, without him, you are condemned right now in this moment to trying to prove yourself before an empty bench. And you will never rest. That next promotion's not going to do it. The sexual conquest isn't going to do it. The perfect family isn't going to do it. Your, your good works, your accolades, whatever you've accomplished, your beauties, your toys, none of that. And yet before that empty bench, you will never stop. Always striving. Always searching. But we do have a high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, because he now sits at the right hand of God the Father on our behalf, you and I have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, and nothing to prove. Look at verse 24, for example. He says, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have nothing to hide. I mean, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did, right, after they sinned, the very first thing was to hide from God. But you and I, we've been hiding ever since. Hiding from him, hiding in our relationships, hiding from anyone that we possibly can, not letting people get close to us because we're just, we're too afraid, right, to be known, to be seen. But the opposite of hiding here is drawing near. You see that in verse 25? It says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We don't need just another priest. We don't need just a, a list of good works to let us in. He is able to save to the uttermost. In the Greek, that word means both forever and completely, that our rescue is, doesn't lack a, a single thing. But you've got to come to him. Now, and when you draw near to God, through Jesus, you are his, and you have nothing left to hide. And all it takes is faith. I mean, nothing else could possibly save us. And if you're not a Christian, I, mean, I, I, I realize it's a hard sell and doubts and issues and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and maybe if, if that describes you, you also realize that if you were to become a Christian, it's a pretty high cost. I mean, salvation is free, right? Um, saved by grace through faith. And yet you know that there are things in your life that would have to change. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't stay the same, right? Any of us who truly believes this story, we, we must be changed by it. And so maybe you look at that and you think, man, the, the cost is just too high. But don't forget about the cost of not believing. The restlessness of always striving. It will never end those of you who are Christians, I mean, some of you are, are weighed down by guilt and shame. We all, we all feel that at times. Some of you, I mean, my wife is one of them. She said I could share this. She's, she's one of those people who just feels guilty about everything. 
and which is kind of annoying because she's like one of the most perfect people I know. It's sickening. And yet she feels guilty about everything. Some of you are like that, and you feel guilty, and you don't even know why. And others of you, you, you feel guilty, and you know why, right? And, and you know the situation. You know the shame of, of sin and the brokenness around us. But we have, all of us, we have access to this high priest. Where are you hiding? Right, right now, in, in this moment, what do you believe that God couldn't possibly love you or forgive you or change you? What, what's that one thing about you that you, you couldn't possibly tell another person for shame? That they just, it's just too, too bad, too hard. You know, Jesus didn't die so that we could hide. He died so that we could run freely into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, you no longer have anything to hide. We also have nothing to fear. Did you catch that he said Jesus is is a priest forever, right? He he goes on forever. It says in, in verse 25 that he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus lives to make intercession for you, to plead your case, to prove that you belong to him so that you don't have to. It's kind of the idea of of a lawyer again, right? I mean, the reality is we do have a lot of junk to prove, right? We have all kinds of things that we could need to defend about ourselves unless there is someone better to defend us. You know, I think as as Christians, for those of us who who are Christians, I think there are three ways that we tend to picture Jesus. Like if I were to say, imagine Jesus right now, I'm guessing most of us would imagine him in three ways, one of three ways. One, as a baby, right? You know, we'll like the Christmas version the best, eight pounds, six ounce, or whatever. Um, second, maybe as a man, um, teaching, right? Doing miracles, feeding people, you know, that kind of thing. We picture him there. Or we picture him dying on the cross for our sins. And all of those are, are true and good. We, we never want to move past those, those things. Those are, those are so important to who Jesus is. But you know, he didn't stay dead, right? Those, those are all in the past. That, that's not who he is anymore. Now he sits at the right hand of God the Father in power, in victory, in majesty, as our representative, as the one who stands there living to defend us. That's the Jesus we should imagine. He's the one we should picture. And it's not that, you know, God is like sort of forgetful up there, right? And Jesus has to keep reminding him, you know, kind of elbow him, say, hey, remember, they're okay. It's not that. Or, and I don't think it's that, that Jesus is just sort of up there begging for mercy, right? Uh, because that wouldn't be a very good lawyer, would it? Not, not at all. It's that Jesus declares justice. He already paid the debt. That, that means it would now be unjust for God to punish both you and Jesus for the same sins. So Jesus is up there saying, justice has been served. The debt has been paid. This one is mine. So if that's true, then you and I, we have nothing left to fear. Christian, God will never punish you. Never. I mean, it would be unjust for him to punish you. I mean, we think that sometimes, don't we? Some, we do something wrong, and something bad happens, and we sort of assume, well, you know, Jesus, or God, he's got his, you know, tally chart, and, you know, him won, me won, we're keeping score, and that's, that's how it works. But it's not, right? God, God doesn't work like that. He may discipline us, but that is always for our good, always out of love. If you are a believer, God will never, never, never 
punish you. Never. I mean, other people will. I mean, other people will, will judge us, condemn us, laugh at us, disregard us, think poorly of us. But if our God already accepts us, why do we get so bent out of shape by what they think? So what, what are you afraid of? Now, I don't, I don't mean to say that there's like not scary things in this broken world, because sure, there are. There are lots of things we'd be afraid of. And yet, you never have to fear that God will withhold his love from you. Never. You never have to fear that whatever is happening in your life or will happen in your life or has happened in the past in your life, you never have to fear that he isn't somehow using that to bring about his good in your life. You never have to be afraid of that. And if we never have to fear his abandonment, what do we have to fear, really? For Jesus, your great high priest, always lives to intercede for you which means I have nothing left to prove. Now, if you're on the trial for your, for your life, right, what kind of lawyer would you want? You know, the billboard kind, right? Better call Saul or whatever. No. I mean, in that moment, you want, you want someone reputable, right? You want the best of the best, someone that you can depend on because the lawyer represents you. And when the judge sees the lawyer, like it or not, they're going to see you. And so who does the judge see in this scenario? Verse, verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's who our high priest is. And yet when God looks at us through Jesus, that is who he sees. Because of, because of Jesus, our defender, our advocate, our savior, when God looks at you, yeah, treason in your heart, it's there. Yeah, plenty of things to prove or defend, absolutely. And yet because of Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted. And if that is how the God who made you already sees you, what do we have to prove, really? Nothing. I mean, this is, this is why we can rest, right? He talked about that in chapter 4. This is how we can be the people that we were created to be. We don't have to spend our lives offering sacrifice after sacrifice. And I don't have to spend my life trying to prove over and over again that my life is somehow worth it. That I matter, that I'm important, that I'm good enough. I don't have to waste my life on that. I don't, I don't have to try to impress a bunch of pastors, right, and show off in front of them so I can feel good about myself. Nor do I have to cower in insecurity when I realize that I'm not as good as I thought I was. What would change in your life if you actually believe this about Jesus? Well, think about it. I mean, nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove. I mean, think about what that would do for your relationships, your, your workplace, your, your family. Think about the kind of church that would create here in this place if we actually believe this. Free to love, free to change, free to give up our rights for the sake of, of others, free to, to give our lives and everything we have and all that we are to this Jesus who makes a way for us. Well, this week, 
as I, as I studied this. I was reminded of, of the story in Acts. It's in chapter 6 and 7, if you want to read it sometime, uh, of the very first Christian murdered uh, for following Jesus. His name was Stephen. And in there, in Acts 6 and 7, it's kind of a longer section there. You know, it's the first one killed there for, uh, for following him. And, and Stephen, he's on trial. I mean, literally, right? The, the council of all the religious leaders are surrounding him. And they, they hate Jesus and they hate Stephen, right? Um, that's why they killed Jesus. And that's why they're going to kill any, or fight or try to prevent anybody from actually following him. And in their eyes, Stephen's already condemned by the court. I mean, he, he's guilty of the worst blasphemy, and he deserves death. But listen to what it says in Acts. It says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Condemned by that earthly court. From, from all the, the people, all the influential people around them, condemned by them, the stones rained down. I mean, just imagine that, right? The stones rained down upon him, battering his breaking body. And in that moment, I mean, he could have kept trying to prove himself, right? He could have changed his story. He could have done anything differently in that moment to try to save his own skin. But to him, the earthly court no longer mattered. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he knew that this Jesus, this high priest, would stand there and say, Justice. Would look at him and say, Holy, unstained. This one is mine. He belongs to me. And when that happens, the earthly court, it just... It just doesn't matter as much anymore. Not that that's not a really terrible story, right? With a really horrible ending in that moment. Yet he knew a better judge, a better advocate. And for each of us, I mean, there will always be people who condemn us, who reject us, who just don't like you, right? Who disregard you, nothing to do with you. And maybe, maybe the biggest critic of you is you, right? And you always feel that incessant need, like I do, to prove yourself. You need a priest. You have a really good one. So act like it. You have nothing left to prove. Nothing.